Hi everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about studying law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. Hello and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast. My name is Camilla and I'm a law graduate from the University of Kent. And on today's episode, we are joined by Samuel Omazusi, who is a history and politics graduate from the University of Leicester. Sam has secured a training contract at Charles Russell's Beachleys after completing a vacation scheme in 2019. And between graduating university and starting, well, and securing his training contract, Sam has also studied for the GDL and LPC and also worked in financial regulation for a number of years. Um, So he's got a lot of varied experience um, and I feel very lucky to have him on the show sharing his wisdom with us today. So welcome to The Student Lawyer, Sam. Hi, how you doing? Hey, great, thank you. Thank you so much for spending your evening with us. Um, We've got a lot of questions for you today, so um, let's get straight into it. Um, So what made you decide to pursue a career in law? I always, when when I'm asked this question, think of it almost like serendipity. Um, and what I mean by that is I was working in a call centre for a media regulator, um, Ofcom is the name of the regulator, uh, in case I can mention that. Um, and I, a lot of the job I was doing was actually logging complaints and also giving guidance on regulations. Um, we used to answer a lot of calls from the general public and telecoms firms as well for guidance and regulations, but we also got an awful lot of calls from lawyers, if you believe it or not. Um, right, and it was during uh, one specific uh, call that I was speaking to a lawyer for a major city firm who complimented me on my grasp of what was a very technical query, um, which he said that uh, some of his uh, trainees and uh, junior assistant solicitors would struggle to break down the way that I did when it came to explaining okay. this really niche part of the uh, regulation and I guess like inception the idea started to sort of germinate in my head and before you knew it I was enrolled in law school doing a GDL part-time in the evenings at BPP Waterloo. Wow that must have been really kind of tough to, oh, it to do, do it full-time or part-time. I did it part-time while I was working because I needed the work to be able to fund the GDL for myself Right, um, and it was tough and there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of reading I remember that and there were a lot of um, short hours sleep but it was probably one of the happiest times of my life because I was in it I, I, I developed a, a good group of friends on the course as you can imagine and we were in it together right. so it was, we were all helping each other and egging each other on basically so yeah, it's good when you have like-minded people exactly. who are all in the same boat together yeah that, that's exactly yeah um, and uh, when, you know, the inevitable uh, lows come along, you know, because of the pressure and stress of it all, um, it's yeah. always good to have that support system uh, already inbuilt within uh, your group in on your GDL course who can sort of lift your spirits or help at least lift your spirits. So I really enjoyed it, even though it was really hard work. I can imagine um, anyone who squeezes that amount of core law modules into you know one year manages to get any sleep I think would be <laughs> doing really well 
you, you know, you get used to it after a while. I got used to like living on five, six hours sleep, and I just and I just used to look at it as uh, well. At least it's prepared me for practice, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I, I I look back fondly um, at that period in my life and the the growth you undergo as well as a person, and the confidence that comes with being able to juggle something as demanding as law in your part time and a day job as well. You know, your it does wonders for your confidence once you're able to you know, get that GDL certification um, and, you know, still sort of do really well at your job. You 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 feel like you've arrived as a professional, if that makes any sense. And you can yeah, completely. Yeah. Okay, so when you then finished the GDL, um, what, did, did you start applying for training contracts then? Mm. What was your... I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I... Um, I did tiptoe around the concept of applying for training contracts um, while I was doing a GDL and shortly afterwards. I wasn't applying in great volumes. Um, I wasn't 100% sure whether, um, well, at the time it felt like I wasn't 100% sure whether I would go on to do the LPC um, yeah. and, and you know, become a solicitor. Not, that, not because I didn't want to, deep down, but because mm-hmm. I had a bit of a, mental block as it were as to whether I could really find a way into the profession right then, okay so I I was really sort of uh, reticent to sort of potentially shell out the money that was needed to um so uh, do the, the LPC and I didn't think for some reason back then that the firm would take that would invest in me and pay for it right so I actually took a year out shortly after after the GDL, and it was a good year out as well because I didn't want to run straight into another intensive course part time anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I took the year out to just reflect on what it is I wanted to do um, for the next coming years, and after that year, I was pretty certain that I, I still wanted to be a solicitor. Um, and I would advise that people in a similar predicament who've done a course part time and uh, sort of dip their toe in the, uh, the legal field for a while to work out, you know, whether they want to be a solicitor or a barrister or what they want to do, um, d- does what I did at that time. Because if you still want to do something after taking time, some time out, it usually means it's probably the right path for you rather than yeah, rushing into something and realizing, actually, this isn't for me. You know, I, I don't know why I did this sort of thing. But um, I'm glad I did that. At that time, I don't regret taking you out at all. Sure. So, what was your journey like to securing a training contract? Did you? How many applications did you make? It was long, and you know we've spoken about this <laughs> on many occasions. Um, it was very long. I'm not gonna lie. Um, partly because of myself, to be honest. Partly because there were events that I was dealing with in my personal life, which kind of shelved my plans to complete the LPC within a certain time scale and sure. focus on training contract applications. I mean, I took the maximum amount of time that I could complete the electives. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how long, you know, I took, how much of a break I took during my, while I was doing the LPC. Um, and there, sure. were, there were really good reasons why I, I did that. I had personal health issues and I also had um, other responsibilities uh, within my family that I needed to attend to. Um, but I, in a way, see it as, I, I, I had, 
I see a silver lining to all of that because the things I learned about myself as a person, but also in terms of the legal profession while I was, you know, obviously working full time and studying part time within a sort of quasi legal environment, first at the Ombudsman and then at the FCA, probably put me in really good stead to actually make better applications later down the line. Um, Sure. And it did take me several attempts to land uh, a, a training contract. But if I'm being honest, I didn't really start giving it my best shot until 2018. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know that sounds peculiar, but I would do maybe the, the odd one or two applications each year. But I think it was 2018 when I actually started to make quite a few applications and I got success with one of them. And when I mean success, I mean you know, shortlisted and going for the rounds. I thought, okay, I need to sort of build on this, if that makes sense, um, and see how I can, uh, you know, uh, go all the di- go the distance, as they say. Um, yeah. In total, I'd say I did about forty to fifty applications. I I, I didn't keep count really. Right. Um, but that was over a period of God, um, over several years. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, but. I, I know that I could probably have secured a training contract earlier if I'd actually focused a bit more um, in the, those years past. Is anyone I think so good? Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, um, I think that's quite a common sort of number of applications that people tend to make. And I, I think, like you were saying um, at the beginning, they tend to be. Uh, applications that maybe aren't so targeted or aren't so tailored and then after you kind of get into it and and do a few then you get to understand exactly how to write a good application and what the firm is kind of looking for and and what firms you should be applying to as well is that how you is that your experience Uh, definitely and I, I don't mind saying that when I look back at some of my earliest applications I actually cringe (laughs) Uh, <laughs> because some of the stuff I was writing down, uh, you know, in and submitting as being my best piece of work, I, it's, it's it's humorous. Um, that's the most generous description I can use for it. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> humorous. Um, and I think a turning point for me was when I actually. Sort some of the resources um, and cont- and uh, tap the contacts I had at my disposal because I had a LinkedIn profile. I'd worked in an industry where I was working with lawyers every day, and for some bizarre reason, I just wasn't answering their opinion on yeah on, on what actually uh, made a good application and what firms might be looking for. And the moment I started reaching uh, reaching out to people, asking for advice, and taking their advice, my applications improved, and I think. The, the thing to take from uh, people who are applying at the moment is don't stress too much if your first applications seem a bit awkward or clunky or not great because mm-hmm. the more you do, the, the quicker you'll improve and you'll begin to spot uh, where you're going wrong after a while. Um, and also you'll be able to write more compelling answers because although each firm has different set of questions, that the why law question is quite a common denominator in all of this. And you learn how to answer that a lot better with practice. So I, I, I definitely think it's one of those things that you just need to just 
like anything, practice, 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 and just keep at it, and then it will come. You need a little bit of patience as well, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely true. Patience yeah. is definitely the yeah. the uh, what, what you need to keep going. I think, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You need patience. Um, okay, so what do you think your biggest challenge was when it came to making those applications and how did you kind of overcome any challenge that you had? Um, I would definitely say my biggest challenge was actually myself. myself. Okay. Um, what I mean by that is um, when it comes to applications or seeking a training contract or whatever it is you're doing in life, but specifically to do with training contracts, I think getting your internal dialogue right is essential. Right. So, um, what I mean by that is I used to tell myself that because I'm a mature student, I'm too old or I don't have good enough academics to secure a training contract at a city firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I didn't realize is that by having that constant internal dialogue, I was actually psyching myself out of going for things and going for opportunities. Right. So I would, in some instances, perhaps pitch myself at firms which weren't right for me, but for some reason, I thought I was going to be my door into the profession, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, whereas rather than really going for the sort of firms that I would actually like to really work at and who I thought I could really make a difference if I trained and then you know, developed a career there. Um, and I think I overcame this challenge by just speaking to those in the profession. And I was really lucky because I got quite friendly with a few partners at law firms. Um, some of them I just reached out to through LinkedIn. In fact, I think the majority of them I did. Um, and they were really, really kind. And a lot of them invited me into their office to have tea with them and just to chat about my experience and application technique. And the one thing that I got from that experience, every single partner said to me was, you've got something to offer. And that's what I needed to hear from someone wow. who'd obviously uh, achieved a certain uh, level of success in their career because they're a part of a city firm. Um, and the thing that they told me um, would sort of separate me from the flock, and I guess this is just specific to me maybe, was that I should try where possible to tell my story in application form. So when they asked me, for example, why law, explain that I had this passion from when I was in a call centre at a regulator and how I went to law school um, in the evenings and how I enjoyed that and how that was a challenge. Just basically sell myself as an individual rather than trying to think too much about what I think they might like. If, okay. Because I think you can get into a habit of thinking, oh, this sounds really smart, rather than actually be a bit authentic about what your interest is in law. Um, and the moment I did that, um, I did. Turn, I realised I did start to turn a corner with a lot of the applications I was doing. Um, I was getting invited to the next stage and the next rounds, um, and I was feeling a lot more confident about the whole process and more and more energised as well. It didn't seem so such a slog anymore. It, it became a, a fun challenge to an extent. Right. So just um, like selling your unique qualities rather than trying to conform to exactly. what, you think, what you think a law firm might be looking for in a trainee. Exactly, yeah. And I think most people, if not all, will have something about them, be it in their extracurricular pursuits or in their work experience or in their, edu- you know, 
uh, academic life which does differentiate them from the average candidate. And once you find out what that is, you, you would do well to really exploit that in applications where you can. Right. So that you can see that you are an individual and that you do have something a bit different to offer. And I think a lot of firms are trying to focus on individuals. I know the firm that I'm joining is all about being an individual. Yeah. Um, and I could tell that from their application form because some of the questions that they asked were really left field, but they were there to elicit your personality. They were there to, sh- to try and get the candidates to show who they really were rather than who the candidates thought that they had to be in some cases. Definitely. I think the question, was it the same in the application that you filled in? It was, um, what film character would you be? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I remember when I first saw that, I was like, what? <laughs> but then I realised why they were doing it. They were doing it because they didn't want the robots. Yeah. They wanted a person who thinks about things and has opinions about daily life and has interests. And yeah. It's, it's just a human, basically, because you have to work with people for seven, eight hours a day on average. If you can't relate to them on a human level, it's going to be hard going. And I suppose that's a really good way of filtering out those with, you know, really interesting personality uh, who might want to uh, sort of engage in firm life and be good co-workers and those who are perhaps not that, you know, well inclined to that sort of thing. Sure. I was, I was going to say it. I suppose they know who their clients are and who they think will gel well with their clients. So if they, you know, they want someone with maybe, I don't know, just different personalities it's because they oh, clients yeah. have, you know, a huge range of diff- different personalities. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'll just slip in here as well is um, when I was doing the uh, vacation scheme, one of the bits of feedbacks that I got and, sort of goes to the point you're making was it had one line it was can leave with clients uh. and it, it was so it's just a simple sentence but it says so much I think about the sort of things that they might be looking for candidates so they essentially want someone who they can imagine their client having a five-minute chat about football or, um, uh, love island or whatever it is you know yeah. all the rage in pop culture uh, because ultimately clients do rehire people, rehire lawyers that they like. Yeah. Like you hire people, you don't hire really service. So it, it goes a long way being able to get on with people, I think. Definitely. That's really good advice. Um, so I think we've really covered the next question, really, which was what, you, what can you do to improve your application technique? Would you, was there anything else rather than just owning your own um, personal experiences and your experiences in your, any employment that you've had? Uh, any extracurricular activities or is there anything else that listeners can do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's plenty of things you can always do to improve application technique. I spoke obviously about accentuating your differences and your strong points, be it in your extracurricular pursuits or your academics or your work experience, which is another key one. Um, But I think one of the other things that you can do, and I wasn't doing until admittedly quite late on in the application stages, you know, in my sort of application windows for a training contract, I should say, was having your application reviewed by another person, okay. preferably by someone in the profession. Because um, I used to, there was a while that I thought my applications were really good. And then 
I actually forwarded it on to someone who was working in the profession and they absolutely shredded it. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but it was the best thing that could happen because I realised, oh, I've been answering this, you know, quite well for quite a while now. Um, they they didn't just shred for the sake of shredding. They were constructive. Of course. In the sort of things that they want, they, they thought that films would like to see in an application and what would be playing to my strengths. Um, and I took that on board in good spirit. In fact, the person who shredded it was someone who's personally mentoring me at the moment. Um, he's a partner at a major city law okay. firm. And he shredded it with the intention of you're more than what you're putting down at the moment. You're, you're not really selling yourself as aggressively as you can or as well as you can. Um, I'd also pay special attention to advice from firms you're applying to. And I, I laugh because I go on a lot of student forums sometimes to help um, people with private training contracts. And they often ask, oh, what should I put for this question or how should I answer this? And there is a lot of good resources for that sort of thing online. But if you're paying enough attention, um, and I know this is certainly the case for the firm that um, I eventually secure training contracts at, the firm will actually give you the answers to the sort of qualities they're looking for Yeah. on their recruitment pages. They will tell you, for example, whether they value uh, people with customer service experience like the firm I'm joining and joining next year. And the, the moment I started reading those specifications carefully was the moment I realized that I could actually... Uh, fine-tune my applications to hone on, hone in on those, accentuate those qualities that they were looking for. So a good example of that was I'm, uh, the firm I'm joining next year made a big deal about uh, their candidates being able to demonstrate good customer services because that's part of their brand, good client service. So I had a job way back in the day as a uh, Tesco's cashier, I and I used to leave that off my C, my application because I thought, when would that ever be relevant? But when I realized that they were really big on that, I actually started to put that on my application, that I did do this job when I was 16, 17 years old. And, and then I, I started to put in other stuff like my bar work as well during university. And it was all just to show, yeah, I can do the customer service thing. I can relate to the average person. I'm not, I have got personality, as it were. It's most surprising that during interviews that they actually did used to, they talked about that early experience quite a bit, more so often than my more sort of what I thought was more relevant experience, my more recent experience. Right. Yeah, that's, so I would, I mean, I know that I've heard, you know, people are told to put those roles, sort of roles down. But I mean, you think that if you come from like a, maybe previous career or if you're a mature applicant then you would maybe think that your most recent job or something that you would consider to be a career would be more relevant than stuff you know customer service jobs that are you know completed quite a few years ago but that's really interesting to to hear that that's still really valued oh absolutely I mean I think you probably would need to judge it on the firms you're applying to but the firm that I secured a training contract at was made it overtly clear that customer service was part of their brand and they were looking for candidates who could demonstrate that um, because I guess that feeds into the whole client service aspect yeah. of being a lawyer. Um, and 
I realized that I couldn't just give them, dare I say it, sort of a more cookie-cutter work history template answer. Right. I had to really think about the instances where I had demonstrated good customer or client services. And obviously, I had that call center work at Ofcom, which went a long way to doing that. But I also realized that I had bar work experience, and I also had um, experience on the shop floor. It may seem menial to some people, like why would you know, a firm be interested in that, but it actually demonstrates a lot of qualities. Like it demonstrates the ability to be calm in the face of overwhelming pressure because you know customers yeah. can be like <laughs> it's yeah, I've done bar work and it is tough. Yeah. <laughs> um and to, to make conversation when necessary as well and just to be able to yeah. um work very hard very for a very long time but maintain a high level of uh, decorum and you know uh, sort of uh, rapport with your patrons and customers, uh, and that's all. That's all good stuff. I think. I think that's the kind of stuff that firms, would, you know, would love in a trainee and a, a, and a future lawyer at their firm. Brilliant. That's that's great advice. Um, yeah. So just making sure you're selling your the right experiences in the right way to the right firm, depending on what they're, what exactly. they're looking for. That's, that's great. Um, okay, so after you studied the GDL, you then went on to study the LPC. So I assume that you self-funded that. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you would recommend to other uh, to, to other candidates who are going through the process? I know the LPC might not be so relevant anymore with the yeah. um, with the SQE coming in. Yeah, but I mean, if anyone's looking to start like this year then what kind of advice would you give to them if they're in two minds about it? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, And I've been asked it by several people in the past. Um, My view on it is that everyone will have their own views on this. Yeah. Um, I would say think very carefully about doing self-funding, especially in today's economic climate, rather. Um, Things are very uncertain at the moment. However, having said that, for me, it was a relatively easy decision to self-fund the LPC okay. because I could stay at home during that period, rent free for a few years. I also had alternative routes into law. So, for example, where I was working, um, they were uh, offering in-house training contracts and they weren't offering in-house training contracts with sponsorship, but for anyone who could pick the LPC, basically. Okay. So that was one specific route. And that was at, sorry, that was at two different places I was working. Um, so I thought a lot of the traditional risks of self-funding my legal education were sort of mitigated greatly by my personal circumstances. Now, I say I, I emphasize personal circumstances because I know people's circumstances are going to be very different. And if, for example, I'm just going to throw this out there, I had just graduated from university and done my LLB or just done the GDL shortly after university and I didn't have uh, the sort of employment that I did at that time when I self-funded the LPC, I probably would have erred on the side of caution and not self-funded it. Okay. Um, But I decided to self-fund in in my specific instance because I knew that a lot of the traditional risks such as debt and not landing a training contract uh, were significantly mitigated enough for me to take that risk, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, because I always thought I could potentially land a training contract at the Ombudsman service when I was there because they were offering them at a time and they were doing a massive recruitment campaign. 
I know it's competitive, but it's another avenue. Um, and the great thing about the, the scheme that they were doing then, it was that it was only open to people who were working within the organization. Yeah. So you weren't competing with external candidates, for example. You were only competing with people within the organization. The same applied to when I moved to the FCA. Um, they were offering training contracts as well. So I, I just took a, um, I just made a judgment call on it, basically, okay. and thought, I can afford to take this risk. And it opened more doors for you. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, what a lot of people don't realize as well is that once you've completed the LPC, although obviously it's primarily for the purpose of securing a, you know, a training contract at a law firm, a lot of uh, sort of alternative careers will look upon it quite favorably um, because they know the rigor and the uh, knowledge you pick up yeah. throughout those courses. Uh, so, for example, I know, I know from personal experience that big four – uh, companies and uh, consultancies will often um, offer, I know this was the case a few years ago anyway, will offer a slightly higher salary bracket if you had completed the LPC and self-funded to take into account not only the knowledge that you uh, have acquired, but also acknowledge the investment in yourself that you had obviously put in yourself as, a, uh, as an individual, because they know it's quite pricey. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to see the LPC as uh, a sunk cost if you complete it and there's no training contract available. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There are many things you can do to leverage that sort of experience in, to, in a favourable direction in your career. I, I just thought it was a risk that I could afford to take and I guess it paid off <laughs> in the end. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, yeah. But I, it's it will depend on everyone's personal circumstances I think right okay that makes sense um okay so for anyone who has managed to secure a vacation scheme um although I know with the current pandemic it's meant that some firms are doing online um online vacation schemes this year which is going to be slightly different from your experience but for anyone who gets a you know a a traditional vacation scheme this year or, or next year. Um, what advice would you have for these vacation schemers on, on you know how to how to really shine during the the one week or the two week scheme, and how they can improve their chances of, of getting that training contract at the end. This is a great question, and um, I could write a whole guide on this if I had the time. <laughs> Um, because there were so many things I picked up during my vacation scheme and I picked up in preparation for my vacation scheme and I uh, emphasize preparation because there's a lot of good uh, organizations like aspiring solicitors who actually do um, one-day sessions for free as well Yeah. Um, for preparing uh, candidates uh, on what to expect during their vacation scheme and how okay brilliant I didn't know about that of their time in fact I went on that one day course and yeah. I went in admittedly with a degree of arrogance because I thought how different can it be because I've worked in uh, organizations all my life it's just another place to work yeah 
But when I went on that vacation scheme uh, preparation course by uh, Aspiring Solicitors, I realized I really didn't know anything right. about law life. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized that I would still have to make significant adjustments um, to, I guess, how I approached the whole opportunity. Um, not, you know, be something that I'm not, but ultimately just be mindful of uh, the various little nuances that only law firms tend to have compared to anywhere else where you work. Um, but there were some key sort of denominators that I noted uh, from my time on the actual vacation scheme. Um, and the one thing that was emphasized to me, and I did do, and did seem to make a difference, was you have to be enthusiastic. Right, okay. And I cannot stress this enough because I'll give you an example of my own experience at the firm. I was placed in the family and real estate division of the firm, both of which were not the choices I put down on the form <laughs> for my kids at the, uh, on the vacation scheme. Yeah. Um, I've never studied family law and, uh, I had, if I'm being honest, very little interest in real estate as a practice area. Right. Um, so, and I had no, I had limited to no exposure to those practice areas in general. Mm-hmm. However, I made a point of researching each practice area before I went into those seats. So I looked at the key issues that um, that sector was facing and what that practice area was working on and the relevant legislation governing their work. Um, I became what I thought jokingly said, an expert in the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 (laughs) (laughs) before I went into the family practice area. And it, and it, they noticed because in the feedback again, they came back and said it appeared that he had done some research on the relevant legislation governing much of our work. And that's the sort of thing that I think they pick up on the people, your supervisors and the partners there. When you know the legislation to some extent, no one's expecting you to be like chapter and verse, but when you know broadly what the legislation, legislative framework is, what they're doing and the, what the key issues are, you're going to stand out and they're going to give you work as well. They're going to trust you with research tasks. Um, I'd also encourage participating in all aspects of um, firm life. So I attended every after work seminar okay. that I could possibly could. And even if you don't know what's going on, like was often the case for me, um, <laughs> just being seen there and showing an interest tells them that you I think tells them that you are someone who's genuinely interested in firm life and the work that they do yeah and um, you want to learn as much as you can and take advantage of uh, those learning opportunities one thing I did I regretted uh, and I could have done more of rather was done more of the pro bono work okay Uh, they do a lot of work pro bono work with clinics and a lot of the VAC uh, scheme students were actually going to the clinics to help them out. But I bet there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah, um, like you think of this. That when you also go to the clinic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you have to kind of make a, a decision as to what you will dedicate your short time there to and what you won't. Um, having said that, I will stress, don't feel you need to kill yourself because in terms of you know working long hours because I was told to go home a few times by some of the lawyers there right. when I was working till 7, 7.30. But at the same time, it doesn't hurt to be seen as someone who's who's not afraid to put a shift in. Absolutely. Yeah. 
because they noticed those things. And again, that was in my feedback that my willingness to work a bit later on occasion um, really sort of was really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, by the advisor and partners, because the, ultimately they need to know that if they did hire you on a full term basis, that you would be in the trenches with them when it was quite stressful as well. That of you, course. You could be lying. Yeah. No clocking off at 4.59 then. Oh, no, no, no. No clock watching. <laughs> no. Um, and you don't want a clock watch anyway because there's so much going on in law firm life. There's so many things. There's so many cogs moving at one time because I only was exposed to a tiny bit of a large practice area that you find yourself wanting to walk around the floor and talk to other people anyway to work out what they're doing and why it's important to that practice area. And there's so much that you can learn just by sat at your desk, like um, practical law. Okay. Became my friend for those uh, that week while I was in real estate. What's that? Um, Sorry, I'm not familiar. It's a research tool that all law firms will have, all major cities will okay. have anyway. Um, and whenever an area of something in law is mentioned, like a term or an area of law that you're not familiar with, it's like wiki but for law. Okay. So you just literally just enter whatever it is that you don't know, and it will give you a very high-level briefing of what that specific term or legal issue is and the case law as well that you can read and um, uh, any relevant issues that you should be aware aware of as a practitioner, basically. And it's so interesting because you learn – you can go down a rabbit hole reading – you know all those research notes because you're just learning learning constantly new things um so you won't even notice the hours go by as you're i was gonna say i bet it goes super quickly oh yeah absolutely and um it gets to a point where if you really are enjoying your work people have to tell you to go home (laughs) so you have a life outside work um the other thing that i would um very quickly stress but this is this should be common sense hopefully is be professional at all times as well during your vaccine. Treat the whole experience as a two-week job interview. Um, This means turning up on time. I know it sounds so basic, but you'd be surprised the amount of people that didn't on occasion. Um, Being well-groomed. Yeah. Speaking to all staff courteously. Um, And when I say all staff, that means support staff as well. It's not just the lawyers that you have to impress. Often the receptionists and the IT people or anyone else that you've come into regular contact with who's not a lawyer will actually be asked their opinion of you as a person. Right, okay. And if you are of the disposition, as I've heard horror stories in the past, that you think that the lawyers are the only people I care about because they're the only ones who are going to make decisions, you're not going to go very far on the scheme. Right. Um, that's just my opinion. And it's just it's just called being a decent human being as well if you talk people with the level of respect that they deserve. Yeah, of course, that, that makes sense. Um, also, asking for work or help when appropriate. Um, I remember doing a draft report and title task during my VAT scheme, and after about an hour staring at the Word document, I realised I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> so I got up and I made sure I drafted some, I put down some points as to what I thought the task generally involved, and then I approached my supervisor and said, I think it's this, but I really don't know whether I should go down this di- in this direction, what's your thoughts? And they were more than happy to talk it through with me as to how to approach the task. 
And so it, it's it's a reminder that it is a learning experience. They don't expect you to be, you know, a ready-made lawyer on day one there or even anywhere, anything approaching that. They just want to see that you're willing to have a crack at things. Yeah. And, and have a go at it and learn as well. Um, the other thing as well is pay attention to your behavior at social events, especially if there's booze involved. Um, I, personally had a rule, I personally had a rule that I wouldn't drink more than two glasses of wine at any event. Um, and not, and sometimes at some events I wouldn't drink any anything at all. I'd just stick to soft drinks. Um, That's a good rule. I think it can probably get quite it can probably be easy to get quite carried away if you're, you know, in a new environment and, you know, the alcohol could be flowing. But I think, yeah, having that rule was definitely something. Yeah. I think it sounds like a good idea. Everyone's going to have their own sort of opinions as to um, whether they drink at these events or not. And if they do drink, how much they drink. But ultimately you should be mindful of the fact that you're being assessed even at these social events. Of course. Sounds, um, and one of the things that someone in the profession told me before going on the VAT scheme, uh, and which resonated very strongly with me, was uh, training contracts are won and lost at summer parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was quite key for me because the firm that I eventually secured training contracts at did have a huge summer party where the alcohol was flowing like it was water on a tap. Right, I can imagine. um it was a it was a lovely summer party but i was very mindful um of the fact that the graduate graduate recruitment team were going to be there yeah and they were there and the people i'd worked with for two weeks were going to be there as well and whilst obviously the firm employees uh, the regular employees not the back schemers uh were uh, were free to obviously let their hair down and go a little bit wild, as as wild as lawyers can, I suppose. <laughs> um, I was very uh, I was very aware of the fact that I was still being assessed. Of course, yeah. That's... And, and I treated um, the occasion with that sort of in mind. But I still had fun. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. It just means be mindful of the fact that people are observing you at all times. You don't want to be the... The one that's trolled, do you? That's yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't want to be the one that's trolled. And one of the uh, anecdotes that was told in the aspiring solicitors' uh, back scheme preparation day was right. There were horror stories of people getting a little worse for wear and having to have a taxi ordered for them home. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good look in in that environment, as you can probably imagine. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I went to an aspiring solicitors event, a separate one, and I think someone, one of the aspire, one of the solic- not solicitors, one of the future trainees, said that at her um, vacation scheme party, I think there was even a fight or something like that. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was probably the worst, the worst, the worst thing that could ever happen. Um, oh wow! I don't know what happened there, but yeah, I don't know if alcohol was involved, but. Definitely wow, that. that is a definite no no. In in any circumstance, that's just totally unacceptable. Yeah, of course. Wow, of course. But yeah, I was just shocked at some of the stories that I was hearing of, you know, behaviour that's that's happened at these parties. Wow. Well, if you're one of these people who 
I, I can, similar like myself, you don't know what your tolerance is likely to be on any given day because it depends on how much you've eaten and the rest of that. I personally think a two drink maximum rule doesn't hurt because it's enough time for you to show your face around and be sociable. Yeah. Um, but it's also uh, ensuring that you are responsible, obviously, of the alcohol intake. Um, better still, and I know that many law firms are moving to this model, um, feel free, do not feel pressured to drink just because everyone else is drinking, uh, and especially if you obviously don't normally drink. Um, a lot of firms are realizing that um, having boozy events can be quite exclusionary. Yeah. Um, so I know for a fact the firm that I did my VAT scheme at did an escape room event during the week. Yeah. And that's the sort of event that I guess pretty much everyone can get involved in. Um, and there are lots of people who weren't obviously drinking during, you know, the uh, pizza and beer and soft drink event afterwards. Sure. But be be very mindful of, you know, alcohol. Uh, and they will ply, and a lot of these events of Audrey Day will ply on you uh, because it's just there. <laughs> no, it's, no, no. I mean, it's it's it seems such a basic point, but it's so important. That's it. That's what I was going to say. I mean, I think this is really good advice because it's something that I haven't really heard covered before. And, you know, when other people kind of give advice on, you know, how to act during a, a vacation scheme. But I think it is such a key part of the, the whole experience. So I think that tip hopefully will save at least someone from having one too many drinks and (laughs) if we've just saved one person from doing that then (laughs) and it's easy to do i mean if you if you're a social person like me you want to gel with people and you want to have a night out you know um, because you're working hard during the day but there's a time and a place that's all i'll say definitely Um, and it's not on your back scheme (laughs) (laughs) definitely (laughs) great so um just moving on to the end of the vac scheme which would be the interview or the assessment center depending on on what firm you know you might be applying to um do you have any advice for the interview stage or the assessment center or a bit of both um yes i mean as i mentioned earlier on um there are lots of various different uh, uh, sort of organisations that prepare students for the assessment centres and uh, interviews like aspiring solicitors. When it comes to assessment centres, uh, you're going to have, for different firms, a range of different tasks, I guess, to see what skills you have yeah, um, and what qualities you can potentially bring to the firm. Um, but... Uh, one of the things that you're likely to have at many firms, and this is just going from personal experience and talking to other people, is you're going to have a group task, for example. Okay. Be it a debate or a discussion about something topical. And what they're looking for in those specific uh, assessment center tasks is can you come up with an opinion or contribute to a, a group task in a way that's constructive and respective of other members' uh, contribution. So things like, you know, shouting over people or interrupting people or being a little bit obnoxious of a particular viewpoint that you may have. Yeah. Aren't really going to put you in good stead. They're going to be noted as, I presume, negatives. 
Whereas being more conciliatory and asking, involving others who perhaps might be a bit quiet during those particular tasks um, into the discussion and giving way, as I call it, for others to speak uh, when they want to make a point are all the sort of things that are going to be viewed as being very positive um, for when, when it comes to the assessors making their, uh, forming their views on you. Um, interviews are a, a tricky one because there's no, I think, hard and fast rule for doing well at an interview. Um, different firms will have their different ways of interviewing people, be it panel interview or one-on-one interview or competency interview or the new one that came out recently. I think it's called strength-based interviewing. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't wrapped my head around it yet. I'm not entirely sure what that's meant to um, bring out of the candidate. But the one thing that um, you can do to improve your chances is practice. And you have to practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And you have to be open to the idea that you've still got more to learn. I mean, I had to park a bit my own ego as a mature student and as someone who had interviewed for various jobs throughout their career. Yeah. Um, but aspiring solicitors, and I can't pick them up enough, run a range of excellent and free events to go to to get you ready for these interviews. So even if you think your interview technique is brilliant or well honed, just to treat the whole experience as um, you know, when you go to these events, uh, like Aspiring Solicitors events, that you still have stuff to learn. And you can still learn new things. And um, often these events will give you the inside scoop on um, particular firms as well and their quirks. So they're definitely worth taking advantage of. And it's definitely in your interest to practice as much as you can uh, to put yourself in the best possible shape for when those interviews come around. Also, I would advise having a crib sheet for some commonly asked interview questions, but do not have uh, a well sort of, you know, drafted answer or a, a stock answer, as they would say. Okay. Because A, if you forget the stock answer in the interview, it will look awkward. And B, um, it's not always, you, you, you appear less authentic if you, if you appear rehearsed, basically. Right. Um, what I would advise is having jotters for stock answers for the for the, for the for typical questions. So things that you might want to sort of talk about to focus your thoughts um, and your um, uh, the answers that you'll you'll be given in those scenarios. So I, for example, would have like three jotters for why law. So I'd be like well experience, general interest because I blog on the stuff on on legal stuff. And also it being attuned to my natural gifts. So you always have something to leverage on and come back to if you feel you're getting lost in the answer. Um, but don't try not to write a f- you know, fully hashed out answer because it, it will appear rehearsed um, and it won't be authentic. And they will pick up on that. That makes sense, definitely. Yeah. I know any time you try and write something out and remember it word for word, you just end up, stressing yourself out if you can't remember exactly exactly what you said you know so i think having bullet points would definitely just help yeah you just stay on the right track but not yeah scripting exactly um so do you i mean you mentioned earlier that you you didn't have stellar academics Mm. um do you 
do you have any advice for someone that might be in the same position for you as you that might want to still pursue a career in law? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how I, I can only go off my own experience, but yeah, um, it felt like, uh, especially within the last few years, although academics are extremely important, and if you're at university, I would stress that you should try and do the absolute best you can in your LLB or GDL and LPC. Um, yeah, if you fall short of the mark, as they say, in terms of entry requirements, don't be too discouraged by it. Um, because I know that I know for a fact that many firms are now trying to sort of look beyond academics to an extent. Yeah. Um, and look to see whether you've got something else that you might have to offer them as a candidate. Uh, so for me, for example, my work experience, I'm a short student, put me in really good stead. I did some really interesting roles and um, I learned a lot of stuff which would be relevant to the practice areas that the firms, for the firms that I was applying to. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, I, when I was working at the SCA, I used to do some, I used to work with a lot of financial services firms about getting their authorization ready for okay. uh, market entrance. So when a financial right. services firm wants to carry out a particular regulated activity they have to apply for a permission to do that i would review that application and i would then um uh, uh sort of make a decision as to whether they um, met the threshold conditions as we call it to carry out those activities and then give them authorization and then they would go about doing you know that particular activity now when i went to uh charles russell speechley to do my back scheme um I made a point of uh, reaching out to the financial services practice head. Okay. Uh, just to basically find out more about the practice area. And she asked me about my experience and she was completely bowled over by the work I'd done at the FOS and the FCA. Right. Because in her view, um, my work experience accounted for 80% of the work that they were doing at that time. Wow. So <laughs> there was a clear alignment of interests, as I would put it. Um, and there was, and, I, and if I hadn't reached out to her or accentuated that in my application, which I did do, I don't think I would have appeared as unique or a draw as a candidate. Yeah. But because I knew that that, that a little bit about the work that they were doing in that practice area and that they were offering seats in that practice area and that they would probably need someone with a bit of regulatory experience mm -hmm. on the line. I made that connection and I reached out and it was well received and I'll never know for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was fed back to the recruitment team that they had someone with that kind of experience, which could be a real asset to the firm in the future. Um, so I would say, obviously, not everyone's going to have the kind of work experience I have or even have work experience, but I would say there will be something about you that you can potentially accentuate and uh, make a, a sort of fashion to your advantage when it comes to seeking a training contract. Also, don't be put off pursuing a career in law off the basis of your academics alone. It can, as I said earlier on, it can affect your internal dialogue and it can psych you out of applying, going for opportunities, which you know that in your heart you probably could do, but you just don't think you'll get a chance, you know, in terms of training at that great firm that you have your eye on. Um, getting your internal dialogue right, 
i.e. believing that you do have something to offer and that you can make it as a lawyer is half the battle. It really is. Because the moment you get that right, you'll actually start doing all the other stuff that you need to do to, to land the training contract because it will give you that confidence to do it. That's fantastic. I think that's that well really helps. I mean, confidence is so important when it comes to, you know, making those applications. So that's that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Um so were there any moments along your journey where you felt like giving up? Oh God, um too many to count. <laughs> too many to count. Um I <laughs> <laughs> after every rejection that you get on application we've all been there i mean i am yet to meet a candidate who's done one training contract application and got an offer and that was it i mean i'm sure they exist but they are certainly not <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's not as i understand it that's not the norm mm-hmm. it takes you a few tries before you land a training contract at a great firm um but there were specific times that were really tough uh and they related to personal circumstances um particularly after taking a break from studies during my lpc um i was i was a carer at one time and right at the time and i was also working full-time and i was obviously studying part-time and i remember saying to myself at, at certain times during that period you know what sam you've done the gdl um You've got a decent job at the moment. Why not call it a day and leave it here? <laughs> sort of thing, you know. Why not have an easy life and just, you know, do something else other than law? Oh, no. um, the other instance, and this was particularly gutting, was I went for a training contract at one of the organisations I was working at, and there were over 120 applications, and there were three slots, and I got into the last five, and they, I was not one of the three people that they offered a training contract to. And I remember thinking, maybe it's not in the stars for me. You know, when that happens, when you get so close. Oh, no. It just doesn't happen for whatever reason. Um, But for me, the turning point came uh, when I actually quit my job in mid-2018. Yeah. And went travelling for the rest of the year. And uh, during that trip, I did a bit of soul-searching about what it is I want to do for the rest of my life and... Uh, do I enjoy what I'm doing at the moment? Um, how can I live a more fulfilling life? Well, you know the usual stuff that you do when you're traveling. <laughs> I just try to work the, the big questions of life. Why am I here? What's my true purpose? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. um, and towards the end of that trip, and especially when I arrived in the UK, I arrived at the conclusion that I would never forgive myself if I didn't actually make a concerted effort to finish what I started. As a solicitor, it was just... It, Questions would burn in me to the day I died if I didn't actually, yeah, you know, make that effort, that true effort to to land a, a good opportunity, train the to and try it out and see if it, I was really about that life, as they say. So I came back to the UK with like new determination to land the TC, and that actually helped me overcome my mental blocks about not being good enough because I knew I was a man on a mission. Uh, literally, yeah. you've seen the spreadsheets that I put together for the application. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I just did the work and I did what I wasn't doing in those previous years. I was reaching out to people in the profession. I was going to those workshops by spine sisters. 
I was getting my applications reviewed by other people. I was learning from, I was seeking feedback from firms from failed applications where possible, where they would give it, that is, um, as to where, you know, I can improve. And I was just doing what I should have been doing before. I was actually just putting in uh, the the hours, as they say. And it, it in hindsight, it's no surprise to me that I actually did land a vacation scheme and uh, training contract offer that year <laughs> after I started doing the work because I was doing what I was supposed to do. And there will be instances yeah. where you feel you want to give up. I remember on one day in February 2018, I got three rejections in one day, and it was on February the 1st, and it was after the 31st Jan, you know, the deadline that you often get. Mm-hmm. And they, I, I figured to myself, they must have been waiting until that deadline passed so they could send the auto-rejection to me <laughs> on that particular day. And I think firms should be a little bit mindful about, about that where they can. Because I got three in one day, mm-hmm. and I just thought, it was a tough Absolutely. day. You know what happened a week later? I also got two next stage progression emails. So it's wow. You're going to have highs and lows. The lows are going to be really low sometimes, and the highs are going to be really high sometimes. But ultimately, you have to remember why you're doing this, and 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 that you want this if it's truly what you want, because that will keep you going when it's really tough, and it will be really tough for a lot of candidates. Because it's so competitive. Um, and, and another thing that I keep stressing to people is to take um, heart and enjoyment even from the small wins. Definitely. Like, um, I, I remember the year before all this that happened, before I got my train contract, I applied for five firms and I got rejection from four of them and I got progressed for the first time ever to the to next stage for, for one of them. And me getting progressed to the next stage was all the vindication I needed to know that actually there are there are some firms who are actually going to give me a chance, who are going to look beyond you know certain academics as it were, or my age or whatever block mental block I had in my head, and th- and say actually this candidate's a bit interesting. Uh, we want to see you know more of him. Uh, yeah, so take solace from the small wins that you get and you will get small wins if you're making enough applications and doing the right things yeah um, you will get i think that's so important just to just to give yourself a pat on the back for getting to the next stage you know i, I think because that is a big deal you're you're you know up against so many different people so getting to the next stage is something to pat yourself on the back for and i think that um sometimes yeah people just don't give themselves enough credit so i think that's that's brilliant absolutely and especially people who are regularly getting to assessment centers because i've helped some people in the past where they said i keep getting to the assessment center but not getting the offer yeah and one of the first things i often say to people who get to the stages was like you're so close (laughs) because if you're getting to assessment centers it means that uh, on ca- on paper, they think you're a great candidate. There is obviously something in your technique that you could probably improve at assessment centres. But the moment you start working on, you know, the moment you identify what that is and start working on improving that, you'll get what you you'll get where you need to be, where you want to go. So 
the fact that you get to an assessment centre or an interview for a training contract, and there was one time in the year that I landed my training contract that I got invited to three different assessment centres and interviews more than I'd ever had before. And I had that weird uh, sort of scenario where I actually had to turn down one of the assessment centres because it clashed with another. Wow. That's so amazing, <laughs> isn't it? You wait however yeah. many... You do however many applications, you've got the, you know, 52 weeks out of the year, you're just sitting there waiting. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you get two in one week. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, you know, it, it makes you pick the firm that you actually want to work for the most and maybe lets you put 100% effort into that one. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Silver line behind that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was surreal telling that firm that I couldn't attend their assessment centre because I was already on the VAC scheme and had the assessment centre during that week as well. <laughs> because I, I, if you had told me the year before that I would be in that predicament, I would have laughed. Yeah. But things, things can change for you uh, in the application process so quickly. And one minute you can be thinking, I'm never going to get a training contract. And the next you're 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 working out which offer you're going to accept. And it's just a brilliant place to be when you you know that there's more than one opportunity for you because you, it vindicates you as a candidate, makes you feel confident. Brilliant. So um I mean I think we've covered most of the questions now. I, I just wanted to ask um what what's your advice because when I first started make, making applications, I wasn't sure because I heard conflicting advice whether you should just make, say, five or six very well-written applications or, say, you know, 20 to 30 applications. You know, I mean, hopefully they'll be well-written, but, you know, what would you think there's like a magic number or what would your advice be regarding that? Everyone's got a theory about this. This is the, the, <laughs> the, the yeah. difficulty. When it comes to how many applications you should make, um, and for a long time, if I'm being completely candid, I thought there was a magic number. I thought that if you did 20 or more, you're in good stead. But looking back, after the, the, those applications that I did, those voluminous the, the numbers of applications I did, I would say that at least around half a dozen to to a dozen weren't my best applications if I'm putting it diplomatically yeah and my le my latter applications were actually getting to the point where I was actually quite proud and happy with them yeah um, and that was because when you do so many applications there are, there is a risk not always the case if you've got the time but there is a risk that they become a bit too generic right and not focused on the firm at hand. Having said that, I am of the firm belief that if you do less than six applications, and I'm using that as an absolute minimum, I'm not saying you should do six applications, you will struggle to get the kind of uh, sort of opportunities to attend their assessment centres and interviews that are necessary to land the training contracts. I mean, as I was joking earlier on, we all know that I've never met uh, a candidate who's applied to one firm, got an offer straight away, and then that was that. 
I'm sure they exist, as I keep stressing, but yeah. the majority of people that I have met have done uh, several applications, often dozens uh, of applications before they got an offer at a firm that they wanted to work at. Um, there's no magical number, but I think you should do as many applications as you can to as many firms you want to work to in as much time as time would allow, if that makes sense. Definitely. Um, I was, I was fortunate because when I came back to the UK, I didn't have a job, and but I was able to stay at my folks' house. And while I was looking for a job and, you know, getting back into the swing of things, I didn't sit on my hands and remain idle. I actually made trading contract applications and I met partners for tea and I met, I went to these events because I had time. So I could make those number of applications that I did during that year. But at the same time, I do know that the first set of applications that I did weren't, weren't the best. They weren't terrible, but they weren't the best that I've done. And it was only until I got into the swing of things later down the line that they started to really sort of, my application started to appear a lot more compelling and um, uh, interesting, I presume, for recruiters to read. Um, so there's no magical number, but there is certainly something as doing too little, if that makes sense. And I think a lot of people will struggle if they're doing less than half a dozen in, a, in, in any application window. Um for me, I did, I think it was 22 in total. Okay. Uh, but they weren't all, I wouldn't say that all of those 22 applications were all great. I'd say maybe about 15 of them were top-notch. Yeah. In my opinion, and the rest were kind of, well, you know, <laughs> so so as they say. Um, but there is definitely a thing as doing too little. And you'll know to an extent whether you've done too little applications as well. Sure. Okay, so um, just before we we wrap it up, um, do you have any advice for uh, candidates who are wanting to improve their commercial awareness? Um, is- oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I read the Financial Times out of interest and because I get a free subscription for the job I'm doing at the moment. Brilliant. Um, but, and you're going to laugh, one of the quickest ways to improve your commercial awareness, in my view, and it certainly helped me when I was applying for training contracts, was being active on social media, particularly Twitter. Okay. And the reason I say that is because experts often take to Twitter to share their threads on various issues affecting business. and. Uh, uh, current affairs, as it were. So yeah. I, I know a guy, for example, who can probably talk you through the practical challenges of leaving the single market on agricultural business. Right. Because his one area of expertise is on phytosanitary regulation. Okay. He regularly talks on this stuff. And I'm on first name terms with him as well because I was curious enough to try and get to know him and contribute to his threats. And you have that at your disposal in bite-sized format as well because tweets have got a limit obviously yeah and you can learn so much just by following the right people on twitter um another thing that i found nerve-wracking at first but actually helped a lot was writing a blog okay on legal issues um 
it's it's terrifying writing any blog because you know people are naturally quite self-conscious about um, sharing their views with the wider world and whether they'll be ridiculed and the rest of it but when you've got that challenge what you actually end up doing is a hell of a lot of research to make sure <laughs> that everything that you're putting down can be you know corroborated and verified yeah so in the process of doing that research, you actually pick up things and learn things that you otherwise wouldn't have just by you know doing regular applications. But Twitter, particularly following uh, interesting people in the business world yeah. or in the legal world, it, it, you'll, you'll be surprised how much you pick up in a very short space of time. Reading the Financial Times as well is very interesting, particularly the opinion pieces as well, not just the business news. Um, the opinion pieces are, re- are very good because they're, very, they're often written in a very accessible format. And um, writing blogs. Brilliant. That's a, will put you in well, that's something that our listeners can do if they want to join um, Student Lawyer, as we're always looking for commercial writers. So that could be something that listeners could do if they wanted. Um, so I think I mean, we've covered a lot today, but is, are there any l- last words of advice that you've got for um aspiring solicitors or you know people who are making applications at the moment i i thought about this and i was going to use a mandela quote um it always seems a nelson mandela quote that is it always seems impossible until it's done yeah um but honestly um i can't stress this enough when you're going through the low points in the application process say for example you get a spate of rejections um, it's important to try as much as possible to remember that things are rarely as ever as bad as you think they are. Um, and half the challenge, and I keep stressing this because it's so important, is winning the battle against yourself. Um, convincing yourself you have something to offer to the profession. The rest is easy because, in my view anyway, because there's a reservoir of information as to how to dress for interviews, how to... Uh, potentially answer certain questions um, at interviews, um, how to behave on a back scheme. There's so much resource available for you to get the answers to that online or in person from people. But the internal dialogue that you have with yourself, your mindset is the one that you have to get absolutely right. And the moment you get it right is when I think you'll start to see the kind of success you want to see in this grueling process. Brilliant. I think that's definitely... Fantastic advice. Um, and yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. Um, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest. And um, yeah, thank you for, for sparing your evening to, to share your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Goodbye. For more student lawyer information, commercial awareness quizzes and interviews, head over to thestudentlawyer.com. If you're a student lawyer who is interested in becoming part of the team, email us at hello at studentlawyer.com. Hold up.